So one of the disconcerting things about this part of the City of God is that there's a shift in style. In the first ten books, Augustine had used the classical style, appealing to and arguing with classical authors. In the second half of the book, the good bishop kicks away that mode of argument, like a ladder that he no longer needs. He now has what he will call a complete felicity of movement or position in his style now. Well, the discussion he gets into is more shaped by the Bible than it is by classical authors, and sometimes this makes it a little hard to read, especially for rubes, unused to looking at everything, everything scripturally, and sometimes when Augustine is getting into the nitty-gritties of a text, it's hard not to ask, why are we talking about this again? So a quick overview, a quick overview of Book 13. He's discussing the ramifications of the contraction of humanity that Christians have historically referred to as original sin, a phrase Augustine doesn't use in this book. Those ramifications include death, that is death number one, and death number two. Augustine doesn't agree, of course, and the vision of immortality that he sketches helps us think about things like freedom, desire, prosperity, this vision he's casting here helps us think about the contrasting citizenries of God and self. So today, we'll be talking about breath and death, desire and freedom, spirituality and embodiment. And in true Rube fashion, we are going to be ignoring most of that and instead talking about memory. Saint Augustine was a guy, and as men tend to do, he died, but he left us a big book. So let's stop and take a look. This is two cities, three rooms. There, there. I, I was weirdly, I don't know what the word is. Like the past two days, as I was reading through these sections, there's a weird amount of like. Word isn't really despairing, but I was sort of like sad reading these sections because you, you and I, Craig, have come in contact with in previous portions of this book when he's been going on about angels or demons, it feels like eventually we find a way into like thinking about the thing that they're thinking about uh, in, a, in a, some sort of relatable way. But yeah, this, this stuff feels, this stuff felt to me like the most magical in a not, not particularly helpful way. Or even like if, if I want to get like really irreverent with it, just like this sounds like, this reads in some ways like... Either, and if you want to give it the, the status and um, like respect of something older, it sounds like some of the rabbinical traditions that sort of like take little details from Genesis and uh, put together a whole complex of things that like you're just like, well, that's not actually there, but okay, you can say that. The modern example that came, comes to mind, just me sort of reading lots of fantasy stuff, this sounds like... This sounds like fan fiction for some, for like Lord of the Rings or something that's like going into the Similaron uh, and like trying to construct a, a picture of what some of the like fragmented stuff that uh, Tolkien describes actually looks like. I guess we always feel this gap though. I mean, when I read the New Testament, I feel that gap between my habit of speech, my habit of thought, my which is so shaped by my own time. If I read something like the book of Jude, for instance, and I, I read the, the severity with which this apostle writes this letter and he 
speaks of those with whom he disagrees as being, you know, like clouds without water, driven by the wind. And he speaks of, you know, without any sort of overlap between his own thought and theirs, this kind of really harsh condemnation of those who are creating trouble in the early church. And I just feel leagues away from him on that. I feel like I have a lot of work to do to connect. Is that akin to what you're describing, Ethan? Or do you feel something even like weirder than that? Is it more comparable to somebody who's really into a certain kind of fantasy and you just couldn't care about it? And I think it's made worse by the fact that I care about the place from which he's spinning the things. Like, I don't know, like my my way into the scriptures for a long time and the more stuff that seems fantastic is that I don't know precisely what they're talking about but I know what they're talking about is real. And then to have like somebody come in and just like start saying, well, we can talk about the mechanics of this stuff. Mm. feels like maybe a little disingenuous to me, if not unwise. And I think I understand in this historical context why this is happening, because this is just the kind of discussion that these people had constantly. Andrew, what are you thinking? And Ethan, I would really like to hear a specific example of weirdness, like some section where you feel like the mechanics is being discussed and it's just... No, so so I I think there's... I think I have more access to that. Uh, so so the... Right, so so using using interesting images to, to sort of deride people is just kind of fun to me. Like, um, so that doesn't feel so distant... Um, and even getting to a place where I could feel that that's sincere, that that would be sort of like that I could do that. I could call somebody a cloud blown by the wind and do it sincere. Like <laughs> I can get there, even though I, you know, right now I'm just grinning like an idiot. But um, I've read enough of like the 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 early church fathers and, um, you know, like I. Some people say that David Bentley Hart is an insufferable and and sort of like arrogant person. Like all of them were in in a large degree. Like you read Gregory, Gregory of Nazianzus, and he's yeah. he's sort yeah. of like, how could these people be so stupid as to imagine that um, Cyril of Alexandria is like that? Um, I mean, Augustine has his moments. Um, there's a different economy of insult like and and compliment it's it, the tact it has a different cadence or I don't know how to describe it but the the whole affective climate is different and uh, but that's not the difference you're getting at you're saying so it's like there's some there's other some other weirdness or uncanniness in this well it's like I was uh, I was having a discussion about so I'm, you know, I've, I've been mentioned that I'm reading a lot of Maximus um, and uh, I'm doing that with someone else. And we were sort of having a conversation because Maximus really explicitly gets into the idea that um, that pleasure is something that was introduced into a, the, the desire for pleasure was something that was introduced into us that pulls us away from God. So um, and we were talking about that. And just based on some of the things that he was saying, you know, it's just one of those things like Ma- Maximus uses this image where once you and he's ta- he's talking about sort of finding God and seeing the good. But he says, once you've seen uh, once you've seen the sun, you can never confuse it for the stars or the moon, which is a great image. But but 
for me, I'm having a similar experience in the sense that like, you know, the, the, the experience of pleasure is in a large degree what makes us do anything, right? Like biologically. So like the, the, the sort of system of, um, rewards, the neurotransmitters that sort of like ping your body to let you know, oh, this is good. Oh, that's bad. Um, those things are pleasurable. I get, you, you can sort of like walk back from Maximus's sort of like totalizing statements and say, well, you know, he's not talking about all pleasure, right? Um, even though he does seem to be, right? Like the desire for pleasure. So in, in that way, there's sort of, I think there's just sort of like a, a disconnect in the sense that, like I can't unsee some things certain propositions are always standing in the shadow of other knowledge. I mean, this is why, this is literally why I, I started down this whole journey of, of searching for church fathers and, and another expression of Christianity. You know, I talked about um, com what I called compartmentalization. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And so like, you know, even, love Nick Polico to death, but even in conversations with him, he would say, well, isn't Jesus beautiful? I would say, well, of course he is. But you've put, it, you've put him in, in context with this, this other horror show. And um, I don't know how to, like, distinguish, you know, I don't know how to distinguish one, one part of the whole from the other. Um, and in the same way, you know, when, when Maximus talks about sort of pleasure, this, the desire for pleasure itself, pleasure itself is sort of this uh this thing that is essentially corrupting of the natural will um i say maybe but i can't sort of like i i can't erase the knowledge that i have that well okay maximus but that the, those pings right the 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 pleasure um those rewards are literally what drive the machine um, and so interesting imagining that they would, that those would, could completely stop, right? It's the same thing with, we, we talked about this before, but at a certain point you start talking about something that's no longer a human being, you know what I mean? Like we're the, just the mechanics of the way we would be would cease to be human. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, is, is that sort of. Is that what we're talking about? Is we're, when you know, because Maximus will talk about deification, right? Like we will, we will become like God. Um, will we? Will we then cease to be human? Well, you know, they would say no. But anyway, I'm rambling now. But you see, sort of the, I do the the thrust of my my problem. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I feel like um, Ethan should rescue us here with a passage from Augustine. Yeah. The. Uh... Well, first, I want to say it's funny that uh, you're having that experience of Maximus because it's for my, for me for me reading Maximus, uh, particularly on the cosmic mystery of Christ. That was like something that shook me out of like this this weird probably two or three years ago shook me out of like Christian stoicism that was like oh yeah pleasure's bad. I just at least if, as I remember coming in contact with certain passages that seemed to articulate pleasure. Uh, uh, as like something that is that 
is God is made by God and uh, supposed to be directed toward him. So the pa- he does definitely have a lot of, to say about the the passions and how they can be reclaimed and properly directed. Yeah, the the passions the passions are the umbrella term over and above and and he's talking specifically about pleasure and sexual desire being again augustine gets at this too a little bit right like the that's sort of like the mechanism by which the fall is perpetuated in some sense yeah what what i, what I was hearing especially even uh, even in his description of the end when he says that you know a human being since it is in the movement is in the nature of a human being and to no longer be moving um you know you would cease to be uh, recognizable as a human being so when he talks about where he talks about uh, just the, the constant movement toward God, like the infinite movement toward him without ever reaching the more and more intimate uh, relationship that will be enjoyed. Yeah, and so and so the, the passion is sort of properly directed. Uh, but again, right, like the, what I'm saying is that pl- like pleasure itself, right? Like so the, the correct order of, well, the, the desires of the will being rightly ordered cannot be divorced from our experience of pleasure either actual pleasure or pleasure anticipated right like pleasure anticipated is in some sense the that is the subjective currency in terms of uh how we make decisions i just i feel like there's got to be something something they, they they there must I think there's some distinction that they're working in that we're not privy to because of the the indelicacy of the English language right. in comparison to what they're working in because like I don't know they're they're having a, a experience that we would just call pleasure like animal pleasure that I don't think they are think of, thinking in terms of again we're gonna get lost because I could start talking about all the research into sort of like the medicinal uses of psychedelics and and all that research that's sort of starting to um crop back up again and sort of the the nature of those experiences um and their um their sort of neurochemical biological likeness to intense meditative states and but again i this is going to drag us off into i don't think so uh, i so here's how i see the connection with our conversations um at least from my angle um by the way, I think we should call this Two Cities, Two Rubes, and then each week we figure out who the rubes are. And Ah, yeah. I'm like, <laughs> so this week I'm there we go. not the rube. Okay, folks. No, um, so I'm interested in the gap between uh, um, the, the writer and the reader here. I'm interested in that yeah. enormous gap that is always present, right? Yeah, I I was asking Ethan these questions because I'm interested in like what is it that makes it difficult to nod our heads to this book thirteen in the City of God? What is it that makes it mm-hmm. as garish, maybe as like those little tracks that used to be spread in my fundamentalist Baptist church mm-hmm. um, to scare mm-hmm. the hell into people? So what I hear you saying is that there are a lot of vocabularies in circulation today that often purport to be pretty comprehensive in their explanation of what it is to be human. So they're um, richly variegated physiological um, vocabularies. 
that seem to be able to account for just about everything. And then when we read Augustine, you, you hear almost none of that vocabulary. But yeah, I wonder how you feel about that as an encapsulation of what you're saying. Maybe you'd want to like qualify that somehow. No, I mean, I think that's definitely fair, right? Like it, there's no way to share the assumptions that we share about sort of the, the mechanics of existence, I suppose. Augustine and his contemporaries, right? There were, there were sort of philosophical insights that have been completely lost today in terms of our ability to think about agency and what human agency is, what it might be, right? Like a lot of the sort of psychological science that I'm interacting with, right? Like there's sort of a, you know, looming at the, at the base of that is a sort of naturalism that says that, well, we're going to speak as though, you know, people can do things, but, you know, we're all just biological machine. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, so the vocabulary is essentially equivocal and, and there's, they feel no need to try and bring the system into harmony mm -hmm. because, you know, naturalism is just sort of an assumption that you can go about not questioning for various reasons nowadays. And, and so, you know, there's, there's just some, some questions and some work that they're unwilling to do, but there's some questions and some work that the, the, you know, these first few centuries of people could not possibly mm -hmm. do because the technology did not mm -hmm. exist, right? And so while they're not saddled with our naturalistic bent, mm -hmm. I guess the way I would say it is that um, the real richness and, and philosophical precision of their vocabulary speaks to a particular set of problems, but mm -hmm. because they have no conception uh, just based on historical contingency, there's another level of complexity that we can ask to interact with the level of the, the brilliance that they have. Like one concrete example of this is you wouldn't necessarily want to go to Augustine for help with mental illness. Well, um, probably not. Yeah. I think he might be a little harsh on you given the problems, the problematics of his day and like what he's dealing with. Uh, he, he'd be inclined to use vocabularies for that that wouldn't be, I don't think, particularly helpful. Right. Did you find anything, Ethan? <laughs> we we sent Ethan off on a like an expedition. <laughs> yeah, right. I've been hearing pages turning as I've been rambling here. And oh yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. So there there's obviously the stuff from chapter twenty two about like the bodies and like that they're gonna eat only if they wish to eat and yeah. that sort of thing. And talking about the the angels and the fact that this is this is established because we see angels eating in these certain instances in the Old Testament, but they clearly didn't need mm -hmm. to. And even they say something about so it. So like when. Abraham bakes some bread for the 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 angels who visit him. Yeah, but then uh, even sort of thinking about the um, his statement about the felicity of these the bodies of the righteous when they are raised in their spiritual form is going to be their ability to basically like translate themselves across in superposition anywhere they desire to be. Yeah. Be me, yeah. Scotty. Don't forget the tree, the tree of life. Yeah, there's the talking about the tree of life. Um, so there, there's that end of it where he's sort of talking about this this uh, this experience that sounds my cynical ear hears that and is like well that's just what the rich want they want all of these experiences to not bind them to anything in particular mm. and that doesn't actually sound like eternal felicity that sounds like the meaninglessness <laughs> of 
uh, of super wealth. You're going to mm. be winning so much, you wish we would stop winning. Yeah, like that, that, that does not sound like the true felicity to me that I, I think Augustine sort of suggested it when he's talking to the Neoplatonists and Maximus says explicitly in the beginning of On the Cosmic Mystery of Christ that um, when he says that, uh, you know, if the, the first state in which we existed was the eternal felicity, but we just were able to choose something different than that, somebody's going to choose that over and over again. And I think the at least in in the modern world, and then also just the in historical examples too of people that have reached the apex uh, of whatever society they're in, and they get to enjoy all of its benefits, and largely be ignorant of the fact that it is all based on um, the existence of a lower class that is suffering constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, they usually end up be succumbing to the very thing that Maximus is saying is will perpetuate a cycle forever. They get bored right? Because they're just doing whatever they want and they don't have anything constraining them. They're not moving toward anything. They're sort of at the end of their particular uh, civilization's history. And so what's the point of anything? Have you guys watched uh, The Good Place at all, the TV show? Yeah, I watched, Susie and I watched a little bit of it. But I understand that after a while, people in The Good Place get bored. Well, Wait, Andrew's an expert in The Good Place. I have no idea what the actual... I have no idea what the actual Good Place is because I only saw the first <laughs> few seasons. The, what you're meant to believe is the good place in the first few seasons is not actually is the not place. the good place. Oh right. yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a a prototype, a prototype subset of the okay. bad place. Yeah. So is I mean this week we were reading about Plato's cycles of human existence. You go through a cycle and you maybe have this kind of glorious experience of disembodiment for a while and then depending on the kind of life you lived before you return to a body. But um, I'm not sure that Plato mm-hmm. thought much about boredom in, in those cycles. I'm not sure if you just get kind of sick of that. And that's it feels like that's why forgetfulness is so important to the Greeks and their conception of the afterlife, right? Like, um, I mean, there are different sorts of forgetfulness, I guess, but they everywhere, it's, it's everywhere in their thinking. Yeah, in chapter 20... Augustine sort of glosses Plato to say that forgetfulness, um, we, we, f- we forget that we had bodies basically after death. And yeah. so uh, for, for, for Augustine, like memory, if we, if we were to lose memory in the afterlife, um, that would be that that would not be the Christian uh, vision for life after death, uh, but for Plato, there's this kind of perpetual cycle of you die, you forget, and then you end up in a body again. You're like, dang, how did I do this again? <laughs> and memory and personhood too. Keep going. Yeah, the the three of us, we are the people we are because of our experiences, right? I speak the way that I do because I was exposed to certain things. My vocabulary is informed by the fact that I remember things that I've read and that those things have been allowed to be integrated. Like Mm -hmm. the variation and um, complexity, all of the stuff that we think of when we're talking about our personality and our personhood um, are sort of anchored in memory. Um, And so... You know, I, I, I mentioned it before, but just thinking about that friend who, who watched a, a loved one dement and sort of 
oh my goodness, this isn't the person that I knew. Um, the, the personality changes that arise when, uh, when key things are forgotten and, and the forgetting starts to get so profound that they, they literally are becoming someone else before your eyes. Um, yeah, so, so, so memory, memory is, seems to me, um, based on that kind of thing to be much more than just kind of, a um, you know, a file cabinet that we, mm-hmm. that we lug around with us mm-hmm. when we need to, you know, answer trivia questions. I think too, um, God's memory is vital here. So the prayers all the way through the Psalms are remember me, Lord. And I, I feel like when I think about the, the dreadful condition of Alzheimer's or of a spouse who has undergone terrible personality transformation because of aging in some way. I think about the vitality of God's memory as being our only hope there. Like God's memory is sort of what keeps us intact. I wonder what you think about that. Me personally? Yeah. So so like if my memory, like, Yes, I do think my memory is vital to my identity, but it is possible for my identity to fall apart, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it does fall apart at death. Like, I, I cease to be who I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not able to sort of hold myself together, so to speak. Right. Um, so right. I don't know why um, the, ex- I, I guess the experience of dementia is a little bit like the experience of death it's it's a complete falling apart of the of the personality and the identity but somehow you're still present um and your loved one is still required to care for you and still has this sort of tremendous burden of of remembering you and not having you at the same time yeah, so I in terms of in ter- I guess in terms of the Psalms, like the the thing that the thing that comes to me is sort of like it's the subjective experience that's being described there, right? Like um if God is who he says he is that he he doesn't forget us, right? Um so it's sort of I feel forgotten. Um uh but that's never the case. Um but then I I guess you know, part of part of my working through the soul, right? Like sort of that that sort of animating principle in us. Um, it's I just don't anymore think that it's like the soul is just your adult consciousness with all its faculties. I don't think that makes much sense. It's something simpler. Oh, I, I think that, that that statement that it's something simpler than just. The, de- the adult consciousness with all its developed faculties that feels uh, like a very useful way of describing it um, and a good way of describing it. In some ways, I think what I'd want to say that it's a simpler thing that is also more dependent on everything else. Like, you know, when we talk about God and everything being drawn toward him, or even when you're thinking about the psalmist crying out that he would be remembered, you know, the psalmist is relating to himself as, in some ways, a creature of no significance who is suffering something terribly and who feels like the fact that he has suffered will, will be remembered by nobody uh, and cared for by even fewer. 
Uh, like not even not even the stones will care that he suffered in the way that he did or something like that, right? And then I think about even something like like the technology we're we're using to to capture this conversation at the moment, um, right? There's a there's a way in which uh, we 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 are sort of relating to the to human indiv- even individual human lives at this point because we can track them so effectively and efficiently. Um, that like no, no information, no fact will ever be lost, um, and in the the memory of the gods we've created will bring about the good by being able to use all of that those facts and those pieces of our lives that are that are going to be remembered eternally or at least for as long as the silicon lasts. Um, to uh, you know bring about. Uh, the great kingdom Um, but then I think about like sitting in orthodox churches through uh, like like funeral services when I think about even just the the way that the orthodox church presents all that the tradition and all that it has um, it does something different than just sort of like captures facts like there's there you can treat sort of like the stories about the saints uh, or like the history of the, the, the church and the various places that it's existed or any of the things that it does in a kind of sort of like factual way. But even just like the practice of like in the churches, um, the way in which they communicate the beauty of what they, what they uh, have been given is by painting the faces of people all over um, their walls and their ceilings. And it's like its understanding of sort of the cloud of witnesses is some is like a community that you're being invited into that that includes both the people that are are alive presently and the continuing life of the dead that came before and are still with us. And there's a different kind of memory there functioning functioning than just a collection of facts about people through time, right? Um, and I think something more akin to uh uh the vision that the the scriptures put forward of the relationship that we're going to have with one another uh uh, at the end um so that when somebody somebody in the orthodox church talks to me about being praying to a saint and uh having their prayer answered or being visited by some uh by a, a saint or something like that i have much more room in my uh in my mind for uh, believing that, believing that that is real, um, than I do uh, for like, and I, for like entertaining for a second, um, I don't know, I mean, for, I have more room than for enter, uh, for that than entertaining the kind of thing that Augustine is doing here um, uh, and where he's trying to like, I don't know, like the, the discussion that one of the examples that I was going to bring us to at some point was his discussion of like spirit and like uh, the whole like like tortured labor of going to various places and trying to figure out the relationship between God's breath, the spirit and the soul. Um, it does not feel like uh, um the kind of thing that the scriptures are leading us toward is this sort of discussion of what of of its words. Um, I, I don't know if that connects exactly as well as I'd like to uh, for you guys, but I, I guess another example is even since we were talking about the Book of Jude, um, 
this is this is very much in a different way than when I was talking about the Orthodox Church and how it holds the memory of the dead. Um, uh, but like you know, there's a, there's a passage in Jude, like right at the beginning, where he's where he's saying that the he makes mention of the fact that you know even the angel Michael didn't rebuke the de- uh, re- rebuke the devil when the devil um, was looking for Abraham um, Moses's body. But said and said, let the Lord. But said instead, let the Lord rebuke you. Mm-hmm. That's a reference to like uh, a rabbinical tradition and a weird mythology that we have no that we nobody you know nobody that reads that has probably or very few people that read that actually have any sort of like um, encounter with the text that he's talking about. Um, uh, but that seems to have a reference to that in the, the time in which he's speaking uh, to the people yeah. to which he's speaking feels like it has, um, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, a great deal more life to it than um, what feels like just a bunch of, I don't know, it just feels like sophistry mm-hmm. that, that um, Augustine's getting into that reminds me more of the, the way that we relate to facts nowadays and the way that we try to capture memory by just imagining that we can collect all the details and then have the perfect picture. One, one related note um, is as we're thinking about memory and scripture, um, just thinking about how scripture functions. Uh, so like, um, it, I think it's in Mark um when he's describing Herod killing off all of the firstborn looking for Jesus um he talks about uh he quotes Jeremiah about Rachel weeping um for her children um but the passage in Jeremiah that he's quoting is literally about the Israelites being taken out of Egypt in exile right so there's sort of like taking memory and repurposing it um making it making making it prophetic instead of um just memory there's a similar thing that happens with paul in um romans yeah romans 15 when he's talking about these passages from the psalms where um god will declare himself among the gentiles um and it if you go back and look at the the psalms that he's quoting um it sound it sounds like we're like celebrating a military conquest it would seem that there's a repurposing of uh of the language going forward the the tradition wouldn't have survived this long if all we ever did was come to the correct uh come to the end of every word and every sentence and and sort of like that's it that is the last word on this how does augustine get into this kind of weird mind space i think sometimes when i'm hearing him discuss scripture it feels to me like a use of scripture that i sort of warn my students against under the aegis of like proof texting um other times the discussion of scripture feels more like what you're describing ethan which is this kind of I don't know, he's painting himself into a corner and the resultant hermeneutic is, it, it's, you gotta be in a weird mind space to go with it. And 
I wonder if part of the weird mind space is who he's engaging, the literatures he's engaging, Neoplatonism, um, Plato himself. And you sort of, it reminds me of the story of like, the, you know, you, somebody was lost in Ireland and he walks up to a farmer and is like, how do I get to Dublin? And he's like, sure, if I was going to Dublin, I wouldn't start from here. It's sort of how I feel when I'm reading um, this. It's like, if you want to get there, I'm not sure I want to start here in the midst of Neoplatonic territory. I don't know if, yeah. <laughs> no, even even like the relationship that you're describing between statements in the Psalms and their use later. I mean, you have there, that feels like, um, a uh, recovering of what are um, uh, like the, 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 they're sort of painful memories that you're looking back on you're seeing in some way a re repetition or recapitulation of them that allows you um, uh, um, like something deeper than just the absurdity of the moment um uh, something bigger than just sort of the absurdity of a fragmentary moment uh, to move forward with and in light of, right? So if I could ask a, a kind of summative question here. In book 13, he is ramifying the effects of the fall. And he does this especially through a discussion of death and the different kinds of death and the effects of that death on the body and on the spirit of, of the human. How did we get on memory? How do we, like it has, it feels to me in retrospect that memory is so important in this discussion of book 13. But when I look at book 13, I've been kind of shuffling through the pages here it really only shows up for Augustine in his dismissal of Plato's notion of the afterlife, in which forgetfulness is integral to what happens. You forget your previous life, and then you kind of cycle back into another life. Um, but, uh, yeah, why why would each of you say memory is so vital to this discussion of life and death and the body and the soul and so forth? I think it has to do uh, it, it has to do directly with hope. Um, the because um, we all come from somewhere um, hmm. and we're all carrying things forward with us, precious things that we don't want to lose. Yeah, yeah, and and things we wish we could shed. But we don't, right? But we don't, we don't have the option, right? Like, we we work by addition, not subtraction. Um, everything comes with you. I, f I feel like a discussion of souls is going to force us into a discussion of memory. A a discussion of hope for the future is going to force us into memory. And even a discussion of Christ's body, resurrected body, is going to force us into a discussion of memory. Because I mean, Christ's body retains its wounds, right? So when we're talking about these bodies that Augustine is so is sort of like so he's like jonesing for he's like so excited when he gets one of these apparently it's getting an upgrade <laughs> um yeah it's still going to be a damaged thing in one sense so what does that mean for how we relate uh to the things that he like he says are the most damaging right the things that will destroy us you know i mean one of the images 
of the end is that every tear will be wiped away. What does that mean? Is it is it a blissful ignorance? Is it I will never remember the bad things that made me who I am? Or is it that there will be perfect mm. relationship with God and so those things can no longer dominate, damage, control? There seems to be an assumption in a lot of the ancient authors that something in one sense is going to be lost. If you're talking about the, the pagan philosophers, they're talking about forgetfulness, drinking, the image they're using is drinking from a river that makes you forget. But I mean, in, within the Christian tradition, you talk, we talk about, I mean, baptism is a type yeah. of the flood. You're talking about death there, um, the loss of something. Or if you're talking about Christ as the refining fire, which he gets called multiple times, the, the refining of something means that a lot is going to get lost. I don't know. I wonder, I wonder how much, like, I know my, I have a, I have an aversion to the idea that um, something is going to be lost. And I think maybe that, that is just comes from a place of having a sense of uh, my own vulnerability in light of what potentially could be, is going to be lost or could be lost as time goes forwards. The fear of death, perhaps? <laughs> yeah, sure. A fear of death. And in some ways I wonder like, Mm-hmm. How much uh, my fear of that comes from a place of just like realizing how much of my life and um, how much of how I actually live. So much of this will probably time will burn away. Right. And I think that probably feeds into why memory then is so important. I don't want to just have to forget like mm-hmm. how I spent all my time uh, uh, in order to be happy mm-hmm. about my life. I know what you're saying, Ethan, about if this is lost, then I am lost because that is all I know of myself. If nothing is, <laughs> if nothing is lost in the care of God that is truly us, is this what you know, Paul is getting at when he speaks of how I no longer live the life I live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Um, is, is there something about of God's remembering of us that is reconstructive of us and that we just really don't have much imagination for? I don't know. I don't know. I guess that's it for this week. Thanks, Rubes. St. Augustine was a guy and as men tend to do he died but he left us a big book so let's stop and take a look this is two cities three rooms <laughs> you know you know what we should do we should we should do like this sort of wait wait style uh quiz question you know since the resurrection body will enjoy what augustine calls complete felicity of movement or position which of the following will almost surely occur in the age to come rube number one what's your answer flat earthers will be very disappointed but only until they remember that they can fly <laughs> rube number two um this is probably one of the most terrifying possibilities. I might be on time for something. And then I'm Rube 3. I think every car in the new creation will be a vanity purchase. So, you get to choose. Send us a note. Who do we write to? Yeah, that's a good question. We don't have an email. We'll have to create an email Ooh. address. We could, we'll, what, what do you think the Gmail address should be? Let's create it. 
three two cities three rubes or yeah three rubes at gmail feels like the right thing also i like the possibility that um every car being a vanity purchase i mean <laughs> if you do actually make that purchase if you're immediately kicked out of heaven vanity no sin here buddy <laughs> you're out <laughs> Yeah, it's like a, a please insert your card reading. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's not remove your card now. It's re you're removed. <laughs> removed. <laughs>